Well, praise the Lord. Good evening. I'm Randy Mosher from Calvary Chapel, Cumberland Valley, and I recognize a lot of the faces in here tonight. Uh, I was here a number of months back, and we undertook a prophecy study. And I thought tonight we would pick back up where we left off, if that'd be okay. If you weren't with us, I'm going to give you a quick overview. If you'll go with me in your Bibles, please, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. And I have to warn you, my hay fever just started kicking in today. So if I get, like I'm normally spacey, but if I really get spacey up here tonight, that's what it is. Ezekiel chapter 38, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited, in the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, you will, not, uh, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days? By my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. I told you guys when I was here last time, I really like doing prophecy. If you only hear this, you think this is all I do. I don't, obviously. I do teach through, just like Rob does, through the books of the Bible. But when I get out on the road like this, I love taking the opportunity to encourage you with prophecy. And prophecy is designed to be an encouragement to us. But I especially like doing it in these days because it's interesting, but I'm finding more and more that there's almost a pushback against it. I just picked up an article the other day. I saw it on Facebook, that, that horrendous social media site, right, that I keep getting myself in trouble on. But uh, as I was on Facebook, I saw an article the other day that said um, the title of the article was, what if we're really not living in the last days of the church and this is just the early days of the church? 
And the entire premise of the article was based on the fact that it could be thousands and thousands upon thousands of years until Jesus would come. And so we shouldn't get too wrapped up in these things. And well, that's fine. And I would say this, I do understand that you and I cannot get ourselves so wrapped up in this stuff that we miss our call here on earth that we miss the work that we're here to do. And yet at the same time, one-third of the Bible is prophecy. One-third of the Bible is prophecy. It's prophetic utterances that were given, and a good portion of those speak of the last days. And I find it interesting that even in the Scriptures, Jesus said things to us such as he did in Matthew 16, verses 2 and 3, where he answered his disciples, and he said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, rather to the to Pharisees, not to his disciples. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, I understand that Jesus is speaking there to the Pharisees about his coming. But listen to these words that he speaks, because I think these can be connected. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 32, he is speaking to his disciples, and he says this, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus, having given to his disciples the signs of his coming, he then turns to them and says a statement to them that is very similar to what he says to the Pharisees in the sense that he's saying to them, you should be able to discern where you are on God's timeline based on the signs that you see around you. Though we don't know the day, nor do we know the hour, we do know by the signs the window in which we live. Now, I understand that that passage in Matthew is sometimes confusing to people because they say, well, Jesus told them that that generation would pass away. Well, if you look contextually at what he's saying is what he's not talking about that specific generation to whom he was speaking at the moment. He was talking about that generation that would live during the time when these signs would come to pass when they would begin, it would not pass away before everything was fulfilled. Now, I just have to tell you honestly, just looking at Matthew 24 alone, just the, the, the birth pangs alone, it's hard not to conclude that we are living in that window of time. When Jesus will come, I don't know, and I'm not here to speculate on that, but I think we're closer than most of us can actually perceive or believe that we are in this moment. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we stop life? No, it doesn't. It means we live it more fully. It means we live it more fully for his purposes. It means that we have an expectation in our hearts that as it tells us elsewhere in the scriptures, purifies us. That's the purpose, to purify ourselves. That as we realize that at any moment in time, Jesus Christ could break onto the scene and come for us and call us to himself how do we want to be found in that moment? I know for me, it's causing me to live more fully for the Lord each and every day and to be far more committed to the service that I'm giving to him, not because I'm trying to earn anything from him, but because I want to be found a faithful servant in that day when I stand before him. I don't want to stand there with muddied hands. I want to stand before him with clean hands so that he can look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, praise God for his grace that covers our sin. 
But man, you know what? We need to get out of the mindset that sin is just a natural part of our life because it's not. We've been redeemed from it. We've been set free from it. We've been set free not to sin anymore. And it is possible, but it's only possible through his strength. And that strength in particular comes as we begin to look to him and realizing that at any moment he could be here. And I picked this passage in particular to talk to people here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 because I don't think there's a passage of Scripture that's more relevant for our times than this passage. It's speaking to the nation of Israel. You might remember that. And in the section I read to you, this is the section we covered when I was here last. There were a number of players. In fact, there were 10 major uh, players listed here, and we'll just go through them very quickly. But first of all, we came across a name by the name of Gog. And most scholars, as you know, who studied this prophecy believe that this is not the title of some nation, but it is actually a, a title of a leader of a nation, and the leader of that nation, uh, of, of the nation of Magog, that he is the leader of that, and who seems also to have leadership over several other regional uh, entities, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Well, who are they? Well, Magog, ethnologists identify Magog as the land of the Scythians. Anybody know what that would be today? It would be a portion of Russia today. It's where the Scythians settled. It would be a portion in particular of southern Russia. We have Rosh. Uh, ethnologists and scholars mostly agree that Rosh settled in modern-day Russia itself. Now, I've heard people take this Bible prophecy and they relate Rosh because it sounds uh, very similar to Russia, and they say, well, it means Russia. It doesn't mean Russia. It's a region therein um, within the continent today, or the area today that we know as Russia. And then there's Meshach. Scholars, again, by and large, agree that Meshach is now what is geographically part of what is today modern-day Turkey. And then you have Tubal. It's also a part of the region that is modern-day Turkey. And then you have Persia. You might remember this one because we spoke a little bit about it last time. It's kind of fascinating because Persia was around until 1935, and then it changed its name. Anybody remember what it changed its name to? Iran. It became Iran, absolutely. It's interesting. We had a, a physician that lived in our neighborhood up in Chambersburg, and uh, he always identified himself not as an Iranian. He identified himself as a Persian. He said, I was there when the Shah was there. I was a Persian. I was an Iranian, these people. And, but it changed its name to Iran, and the reason they did that is because they were under pressure from Hitler and the Nazi party, and Iran literally means little Aryans. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Ethiopia. Uh, scholars tell us that Ethiopia, as being referred to here, encompasses more of the territory than we know today as present-day, the present-day nation of Ethiopia, but it also includes a large swath of territory south of Egypt in what today would be considered the northern Islamic African region, northern Sudan, Somalia, that region of the world. And then we have Libya, and, and most agree that that is modern-day Libya today. Uh, Gomer, there is a little bit of disagreement over who that is, but most agree that Gomer is what is today the Indo-European region of the world, areas where Islam is growing very rapidly in the world today, although there are some that would argue it is a part of Turkey as well. So it's somewhere in that region. And then we have Togarma, and Togarma has long been identified and accepted as the region that is today Turkey, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. So when you look at this list and you look at this passage, remember this is a list of nations that will come together under the leadership of this unidentified individual other than the name of Gog who will lead them on an invasion of what is today Israel. 
They will come across the mountains, and we were told in that passage one of the reasons they're coming, at least from God's perspective, is he's coming to take booty. He wants some resources. He wants something that they have, and we'll get a little bit more into that tonight on why Israel would be a target today and an interest of, of these nations. Uh, I am uh, obviously with his leadership over Magog, Rosh, and Meshach. It would indicate that that leader is most likely a Russian leader. Uh, I won't go so far to say that it is, is Mr. Putin, but it could certainly be. He would certainly fit the bill, wouldn't he? But our job isn't to speculate who it is as much as just build the framework with what God has given us, and we'll let God fill in the details because details can shift and change, as you guys know. But the frame that God has given us does not. And so we know that at some point it will come. But I would also say pay attention to this list because when you look at this, all of these nations, for the most part, uh, there's some that are back and forth, uh, but for the most part, they're all in the basket. They're all beginning to coordinate amongst one another. Now, I understand there's stress between Russia and Turkey. That's a shift since I was here last time. Um, if you recall, when I was here, uh, Mr. Erdogan was sending lots of signals to Russia that he wanted to do the kumbaya thing with Putin. Uh, and that's gotten a little bit strained. But I noted now that Russia is talking about pulling back out of Syria, which could enhance the relations with Turkey before this is over. So uh, just because the stew is being stirred up doesn't mean that these players are out. You know, the stew's just being mixed around as time passes. Remember, God has a time frame on this, and we're going to see that tonight. This is God's plan. God is doing this. He's putting the hook, as he says it. He's putting the hook in their jaws and dragging them into this conflict for his purposes. And part of his purposes, as we will see later in this passage, is to awaken Israel um, to their identity as his people and to really begin to make them aware of his existence once again as he leads them on a course that eventually will lead them back to their Messiah. But let's pick up tonight in verse 14. Let's look right there. And by the way, can I say one other thing before we go any further? Persia, it's really interesting. I, I noted this before, but uh, lest you think we're not living in that time, I, I certainly think we are because there is only one time in all of Scripture where Persia is mentioned as an, as an enemy of Israel. And here it is. Up until this point, you will never find an occurrence where Persia was an enemy of Israel. In fact, Persia is the one that sets them free after Babylonian captivity. It's the Persian king Cyrus who comes to their aid. And, and actually, he's identified in prophetic scripture as going to do this. He recognizes that the God of Israel has recognized him and called him by name for the purpose in which he served. And they've long been alongside of Israel until everything shifted in our time. And now all of a sudden, we hear just this week what they were launching test missiles with Israel must go on the side of it. You know, just incredible. Hurry home, Rob, right? Actually, he's in the safest place he could be. God's going to defend them. Praise the Lord. Well, let's pick up in verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, Will you not know it? In other words, God will be fully aware of the conditions of, uh, earlier told us that there's going to be conditions of peace. But remember that word peace, when it talks about unwalled villages and peace earlier on in this passage, it can be speaking of a relative peace. It doesn't mean that the world has to be at peace. Some people confuse this battle and they say, well, this is happening when Antichrist is in power because he's going to bring peace to Israel. Well, well, if the word is truly being interpreted as absolute peace, then you could make that argument. But if you look up the Hebrew word for peace that's being used here, you will find that it can speak of a relative peace. And I would argue today that despite 
despite all of the conflict that Israel has at its borders, Israel is a fairly secure country. They're very secure in who they are. They're very secure in their ability to defend themselves. They're, they're not, even though they have, uh, um, you know, fencing and such to prevent some, some unwanted access into the country. It still is a rather porous country. You can come and you can go. You can move freely through the country. It is really living in a state of, if you will, unwalled villages in a state of peace. And so we could make the argument that this battle can actually come before Antichrist. And I personally believe it will. It doesn't tell us that. But there will be some reasons I'll highlight tonight that will help you understand why I think that may be the case. But here he's saying that Gog is going to be aware of these conditions of relative peace and safety in Israel, and he's going to take advantage of the situation. It could be that Gog has even contributed to the sense of peace and safety through diplomatic efforts. It's interesting that Mr. Putin has been reaching out on a quite frequent basis to the Israelis. Uh, he kind of came down and began to talk to them after our own president began to sell them out in the not too far past here over some issues. It, you'll note Mr. Putin uh, actually entertained Mr. Netanyahu who went to see him, and it's interesting. Could, could these two strange bedfellows get into bed together? And it's quite possible. It's quite possible if Israel felt more security if that were offered to them by Russia. We don't know that, but it could certainly be that Russia would offer that to them. It could also be that the Battle of, of Psalm 83, uh, actually, we, we don't have time for that tonight, but if you read Psalm 83, I am of the opinion that Psalm 83 is a prophetic psalm. Because you will find in, in that psalm, it talks about a, a, uh, a conglomeration of nations that come against Israel. But if you follow back the ethnology on these nations, they're the surrounding nations, the ones that immediately surround Israel, not the far out nations as we're seeing here in this battle. And it talks about them being defeated by Israel. And in fact, most scholars would argue that those nations have never really come together as a coalition and attacked Israel up to this point. So there are some, and myself included, that believe Psalm 83 may very well be a prophetic psalm. If it is a prophetic psalm, and there is a battle that precedes this by some of the surrounding nations, where today you see Hamas, you see some of the other places that are a direct threat, and Israel were able to neutralize them with that not even create a greater sense of peace for the nation of Israel and security. It would absolutely do that. Do we know whether that will happen? No, we don't, but we can watch and see. Well, look on in verse 15. It says, then you will come from your place out of the far north and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. I would remind you, we've seen this term before, the far north uh, earlier in the passage. But if you were to take that Hebrew word far north, you will find that it is speaking of as far north as you can possibly go in a direct line from where this is being spoken. If you were to take out an atlas tonight and draw a straight line from uh, Israel straight to the north, guess where you would be, where it's inhabited? It would be Russia. And so I believe that this gives a, a sense of absoluteness to the fact that this is speaking of the Russian peoples. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. And again, uh, this, this, we see these terms used, riding horses, you know, shields, bucklers, and swords, and you know, people will look at that and say, well, this can't be speaking of the future because they're not on horses anymore. We got tanks and all that. Well, a couple of thoughts for you again. You know, first of all, how would someone like at Ezekiel describe that? You know, how would he, in a vision being given to him by God, describe a, 
a tank. You know, I saw an M1A1 Abrams tank blasting across the desert. He would have no concept of that. So he would describe it in the terms. There are some that believe that the world environment could change that drastically that it becomes necessary to go back to these things, you know? Uh, somebody recently said that, you know, if we were to fight World War III, we'll be uh, fighting with sticks and stones after it's over again. You know, I, I, I'm not of that venue. I really don't think it's going to be a change in the environment. I do think it's more a nature of the fact that Ezekiel is describing things in his terms that his people will understand, yet seeing things in the future. It's also interesting, and, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I will tell you that, but I did a little digging on this, and there are others that agree with this, but uh, the word that's used here for horses, it's interesting, the Hebrew word that's used is literally interpreted as leaper. Leaper, you know, like something that bounces, leaps, a leaper. It's associated elsewhere in Scripture with a bird. For example, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 8, verse 7, that same word is used, and it's used in reference to a bird, same word. And the Hebrew word for riding is a word that literally means drivers that are carried, drivers that are carried, like, like in a chariot, right? If we combine these words literally, they could actually be describing something that flies while carrying passengers, like a helicopter or a transport aircraft. So could very well be. But he sees them coming. This great army is descending on Israel. Then it says in verse 16, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. Again, that sense like a cloud means an overwhelming force. As I mentioned when I was here last time, you know, up to this point in Israel's history, uh, they pretty much beat their chest at their ability to fend off their enemies. You know, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War. We see Israel engaging their enemies. We look at and say, God's hand of intervention yeah, there, go for it, right? We see God's hand of intervention, but to the, to, the Israelite, to the Israelis, they see their own military prowess. The sense we get from this battle is that their military prowess will not be enough. There's too many coming against them. This is an overwhelming force. And if it were dependent on that, they, they wouldn't be able to boast at the end of this. They would be wiped out. There will be an intervention in this case by God that even they will recognize that he has intervened on their behalf. Again, there's an awakening taking place. And, and keep in mind, too, as we look through this, not to confuse you, but keep in mind, chapter 37 came before this chapter. And what was chapter 37? The Valley of Dry Bones. We're speaking of the nation of Israel. It isn't speaking of you and me. I know we hear those inside. I grew up in Sunday school singing a thing about these, these dry bones, you know, and, it, and, you know, being depicted as our salvation. It's not. It's speaking of the nation of Israel coming to life, and it talks about God breathing a breath into them, and these are all combined. This is all a part of that process being played out. And so God's going to intervene on their behalf. So they're going to come like a cloud. It goes on in verse 16. It will be in the latter days. Again, a term that's used to speak of the last days, not some battle in between. Yes, sir. We do not know. We don't know. I, as I said before, I would speculate, my own speculation, and I, I want to make that clear. That's my own speculation. I believe it's before Antichrist. I believe this will set the stage for Antichrist, and, and I'll explain as we get further into this why I think that, okay? But there are those. There are some, some prophecy scholars who absolutely believe that this is coming sometime between Antichrist's rise in that first year of the tribulation, somewhere between there and the midpoint that this actually takes place. 
It could be. It could very well be. But I think that there's some hints given to us in here that would cause me to believe that it's, it's before he actually comes to power, may actually lay the groundwork for his rise on the back end of the destruction that takes place from this, when the world is sick of what has just happened between Israel and pretty much the Islamic nations of the world other than Russia, you know, and, and there may be a push for peace, a push for a, a way to put up the temple. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to it. All right. Hopefully, if you're, we're all going to be here at one o'clock and I will get there, I promise. Um, in the latter days, he says, so that the nations may know me. See, God is saying, this is about me identifying myself. It's not about you defending yourself. You look at Psalm 83, you're going to find a reference to Israel defeating those nations. It doesn't really make a reference to God doing it on their behalf. Now, certainly God empowers them to do it, but it's more by their ability to fight. Here, he's saying, I'm doing this thing. I'm bringing them down, and I'm going to give you victory over them. I'm going to do this thing so that you will know and that the nations around you will know that I exist, he says, when I am hallowed in your eye, or when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Verse 17, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? So God is essentially saying, let there be no question in your mind that I am behind this event. I spoke of it to you in advance, and I am the orchestrator of it when it happens. I have ordained it to happen. I, it is important for us to realize, especially in the craze and seemingly out of control world in which we're now living, that God has a plan for this world. You know, I read a passage like this, and I am actually encouraged. You know, yep, carnage, all kinds of bad stuff in this. Don't really want to be there to see it. We could be, but you know what? If we are, we are. But, but the reassurance I have in my heart is that, you know what? God's orchestrating this. He has a plan. He's working it out. Just like he has worked it out in our lives individually and is doing that, he's working it out for the church collectively. He's working it out for, for his people, Israel, collectively. He's working it out for the world collectively. He has a plan, and he is in control. And sometimes when we watch, especially in this crazy election season, right, we look and say, it's out of control. God fell asleep at the, at the helm. And I would argue he's saying, I haven't fallen asleep. I'm doing this thing. I'm doing this thing. You don't see it. But I'm doing this thing. I was just, we've been going through Second Chronicles on Wednesday nights in our fellowship. And, you know, there's a passage in Second Chronicles um, chapter 12, I believe, where God is telling uh, Rabom that uh, the split of the nation has just taken place in Israel. Rabom's going to secure it and hold it together. And God tells him through the prophet, no, don't do it, for I am doing this thing. You know, sometimes God brings things into our lives and he allows things to flow into our lives that we don't particularly like and they're uncomfortable to us and they're unsettling to us and, and we see them as bad. But God says, you know what, sometimes I'm doing that to your benefit and you just don't realize it right now as you go through that. Trust me in it. Keep your eyes on me. Don't try to take matters into your own hand. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Just stay with me and I'll keep you through it all and allow me to complete what it is that I want to complete. As I told our congregation last night, I would encourage you guys, there is no other time in history like today. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you have not fully committed your life, I'm not just talking about turning your life over to Christ. I mean truly yielding your life to Christ. If you've not done that, you need to do that. You need to do that because it is, it is literally a matter for us uh, of, of what our protection is in this day and age in which we live. We need to be fully turned over. This is not the time to be one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. There's no, there's no time for that now. You know, we really need to be fully sold out to Jesus Christ. We need to let him be our focus completely. And, and here's the promise, no matter what comes, 
He will see us through. He will carry us through it. He will keep us through it to our benefit and to his glory in the process. But that I can only say to you if you're willing to fully yield to him. If you want to do things your way and keep your foot in the world as a lot of the church is doing today. I mean, the church is going crazy today. But if you want to have your foot in the world like a lot of the churches and be more like the world, I can't guarantee the outcome. And I can look at you and say with assurance that if you've placed your faith in Christ, you'll be saved. But at what cost? You know, of what have you lost in the process by not giving him everything? Listen, give him everything. There's nothing you're going to lose in this life that's worth hanging on to. Not a thing. Trust me, it's not. It's all going to perish. It's all worthless. And what he gives to you is far greater. And so he's, he's communicating, he's in charge of this, he's working this through. And again, note that God's prophets warned of this coming event, it says, for years, for years. He's still warning of this coming event because it hasn't happened yet. He's still prophetically warning people of this coming event. I'm giving it to you tonight. I'm not the prophet. His prophet has spoken. I'm just reading to you the words of his prophet that says this event will take place. Verse 18, and it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. In other words, when these nations release their fury on Israel, when these, this coalition comes against Israel and releases their fury, this is a play on words. He's saying when they release their fury, I'm going to release my fury against them. They'll release their fury against my people, but I will release my fury against them for what they're doing. You know, Scripture declares that it is a terrible thing to be on the receiving ends of God's fury and wrath, isn't it? I mean, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Isn't it good to know that we're not going to fall with fear in that same sense into the hands of the living God because of our faith in Christ? Because we're kept from judgment, we're kept from wrath, we're kept from condemnation. Yeah, yeah, I'll clap to that. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. You know, but you know what? We got a world around us that's not. And, and it's easy to look and say, well, they're just going to get what they deserve. But you know what? should be breaking our hearts. It should be breaking our hearts. I'm not, I'm not rooting for this day to come in the sense that I want to see their justice meted out to them. Because the truth is we all deserve to have justice meted out to us. But what I am praying is for the Lord to come. But before he comes, I'm praying that he will mobilize his people, that he will mobilize us and stir our hearts, that we'll begin praying for our neighbors and our friends and praying for the people that offend us the most. You know, you know, the person you watch when you turn on the news that drives you up the wall or the, the politician that drives you up the wall. When's the last time you prayed for their salvation? Right. Uh, and not pray, fall over and, you know, hit your nose against a rock, but praying for their salvation. And, and we need to do that because God does love humanity, but he also says that there is a day when my judgment comes. And when it does, is a, is a fearful, fearful thing. Look at verse 19. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. What, what is God? He says he's jealous. What's he so jealous of that it would torque him off to this extent? Well, the root idea in the Old Testament word jealous is to become intensely red it seems to refer to the changing color of the face or the rising heat of the emotions which are associated with intense zeal or fervor over something dear to us. It's interesting. Getting worked up over something that is dear to us. Both the Old and the New Testament words for jealousy are also translated as zeal. You'll see that word and it, it can be meaning the same thing. Being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same thing in the Bible. And God is zealous. He's eager about protecting what is precious to him. And one thing that is absolutely precious, most important to him in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel. 
It's the nation of Israel. And he's intensely jealous. It tells us in Psalm 135 in verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. He owns them. He, he established them. He called them into being. He called them for his purposes. And he is intensely jealous of them. He wants to protect and he wants to keep them. And don't lose sight of that fact. There are movements today that are telling us that God is done with the nation of Israel. That is a big mistake. I'm just telling you. It's a big mistake biblically. It's a wrong interpretation of scripture. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. But right now he's dealing with you and me. We are the ones. And what does Paul tell us that our existence is for as the church? To provoke them to jealousy. Why does he want to provoke them to jealousy? So they will come running home to him as well. So that they will come home to him as well. And when we look at end time prophecy, that is one of the reasons why I believe the church is not here during the tribulation is because the tribulation is really multiple levels of things that God is doing. One is the judgment of the world, but the other piece is he's finishing his work with the nation of Israel. He, he, we're done. You know, we're done. We've served our purpose, and we will be with him. But he's going to finish what he's done and what he started with the nation of Israel. He has not completed all of the promises that he's given to them, and he will be good to his word. In fact, in Scripture, you'll find in the Old Testament Scripture, he views Israel, and he refers to Israel as his wife, as his wife. Now, contrast that with us, because he is also jealous of us, too, and he's protective of us. But he refers to us as what? His bride. His bride. Two different terms in the scriptures. We, the church, are his bride. Israel is his wife. Because he's been married to her long before he was married to us. But yet he's protective of all of us. And you know what? There's reassurance in that too. Because I, I know I've talked to people, you know, everybody's wondering what's going to happen in our country. Is there persecution coming? There could very well be. I mean, it's already around us, but it could come in force. But you know what? I know this, that if you want to put a hand on God's people sooner or later, God's going God's to deal with that. God's going to deal with that. And so we are, we are the ones that he loves. We are the ones as well as Israel that he loves. Well, look on. He says in verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Although God's wrath will be directed against these specific players, there will be a terrible display of his power that will, to some degree, be noticed worldwide. That's what this verse is telling us. He's going to shake things up so that the world sits up and takes notice that something different is happening here. And people will clearly know that what will be happening will be an act of God, a true act of God. You know, we throw that term around a lot, don't we? Well, that was an act of God. You know, that was the judgment of God. I, I, you know, every time something happens in our country, everybody says, that's the judgment of God. And I've long said, you know what? That's nah, not the judgment of God. And that doesn't mean God's not shaking things up. But it's not the judgment or the wrath of God. We have no concept of what that is. Nor do we ever want to have a concept of what that is. But we have no concept of what that is. When you look back in the scriptures where you see God moving in such a way that he's doing that, it is a terrible, terrible thing. And it is very clear that he's moving and doing these things. 
He says in verse 21, I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. God will create when these armies come against Israel. He will create so much confusion, so much chaos in their ranks that they will be killing each other off instead of killing his people, Israel. Now, this is nothing new if you know your Old Testament scriptures. God often did this with his enemies, right? The enemies of God's people. In Judges 8, he did it with the armies that opposed Gideon. He turned them one against the other. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, he did it with the Philistine army that opposed Saul. They went after each other. In 2 Chronicles 20, he did it with Ammon and Moab, turning them against their ally, Mount Seir, and then against themselves so that they ended up devouring themselves. God has a tendency to do that. You know, it's interesting. I believe that even does that uh, within the church in certain situations in order to protect her. Uh, I had a good friend who was a pastor who uh, I was at a conference with one time, and I saw him, and I said, how are things going? He said, well, not too good. <laughs> I said, why? He said, well, he said, we were like, you know, seeing four or 500 people regularly, and he said, and one of my worship leaders decided to lead a congregation of his own out. It wasn't like he wasn't looking to do it the right way. He just was trying to get a following after himself, and he moved into a building about a block away from us. Really? Yep. And now everybody sees him, and everybody's trying to run down there. And I said, so what are you going to do about it? He said, absolutely nothing. He said, first of all, what am I going to do? He said, secondly, but why do I need to? He said, God has a tendency to let people devour themselves when they try to devour things that belong to him. And you know what? He was right within six months. The infighting within that little group that had split off and tried to do their own thing, the infighting that took place, they began to devour one another. Why not? Because when the spirit is wrong and you're being led off by that wrong spirit, you don't, you don't think that's going to become a problem later. And, and everybody else who's following has is, is got something going on as well. And sooner or later, somebody's going to try to take that from you that, God, that you believe God has given to you. And he said they eventually imploded and the good sheep came home. You know, praise the Lord. He's the defender. He takes care of his people. And sometimes he does it just by letting their enemies devour themselves. And that will happen in this day. He says in verse 22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Again, in, in previous wars, God has clearly protected Israel, but this is going to be far different. The language here indicates it's far different. The, the language clearly indicates, you know, flooding rains, uh, a great hailstones, fire, brimstone, that in this war, God will be intervening personally in such a way that, that people will recognize that this is absolutely different than any protection that he has ever done over the nation before. He is doing this. He's going to be the defender of Israel in this particular battle. And it's important for us to understand that even though we're not familiar with, with a God who does these things, the nation of Israel is, right? You and I look at this, this is foreign to us. We're used to the new covenant and Jesus, you know, and, and we sometimes think, well, this is who God is now. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and there's a day coming when God is going to begin again to operate. We're in a time of grace in the world. There's no question but there's a period coming again. When you look at the end time events, I believe we're moving closer back in those days, back to the way God operated in the Old Testament. He's still going to be meeting out pure justice in that day. And he's going to be intervening and doing these things. And so, you know, it may seem strange to us, but it is still the God that we serve. But don't misinterpret that either. As he does those things, he is still a God of love. He is still a God of love. I had a, a guy in our fellowship that for years would, uh, his family had been coming. His son uh, was, he's a Jew. His son was a Jew. 
And the son's wife was a Christian, and she said, you know, never do missionary dating, but I did it, and it praised the Lord for his grace because it worked out. My husband got saved. So he converted from Judaism to, to he got saved. But the dad never did. The dad was actually a surgeon at the University of Miami. He was the chief of, of, of instructional. He was a teacher at the university for surgery. And he would come to visit, but he had pretty much written off his son because he converted. But he would come to see the grandkids. And the grandkids were winning his heart. And so over time, he started talking to the son again. So one day, his son came to me at church, and he said to me, he said, hey, he said, Pastor Randy, he said, could you, could you get together with my dad and I for breakfast? He has some questions, and maybe you can answer them. I said, well, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. I said, but John, you... You know, Lord, you're more than capable of answering. He said, no, I think you need to do this. That's never a good thing when somebody says that. So, okay. So we went, to, we went to breakfast, and it was just delightful. This is a delightful guy. We're sitting at breakfast, and we're just having a grand time. And all of a sudden, he stopped at the end of breakfast. He said, well, I know my son told you I have some questions. I said, yeah. Well, he pulls out this stack of cards. You ever seen those, those old computer papers that you could throw out? and had them? It was almost <laughs> like that. I mean, he had a stack of cards like this, and I thought, here we go. His first question to me was, who made God? I thought, oh, here we go. But you know what? The Lord, the Spirit just began to move, and, and I started answering these questions one after the other, after the other, after the other. It was the Holy Spirit. And I could tell that they were right answers, you know, as they were coming out of my mouth because he'd look at the card, and then he'd put it down, and he'd grab another one, you know? Well, he and I had developed a relationship over time. In fact, he started coming to church on a regular basis. He found out I was teaching through Deuteronomy at the time, and he said he was going to come and listen, and, but he could never come on a Sunday you know, because that would be verboten. He couldn't come on a Sunday. He, you know, no good Jew would come in on a Sunday. Within about a month of getting to know this guy, he started showing up on Sundays because I was teaching through Revelation. And so we're having these great conversations. But, but here's the point I wanted to make. We were sitting at the table one morning, and, and he's talking, you guys, these three gods, and he's talking, you know, his concept is we worship three gods. And I'm trying to explain, and we're going, going, going. And then in the middle of it, he looks over, and he says, and this thing about grace, he said, I don't understand. What's grace? And, and, of course, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't relate to that because you're thinking law. You don't relate to grace. So I took him through the Old Testament, and I showed him God's grace in the Old Testament. Though the word may not be used, I showed him God's grace. I showed him David. I said, what should have happened to David after his sin? Bathsheba? He should have been killed. Right, but God doesn't do it. In fact, at the end of his life, what does God say about David? He's a man after my own heart. I said, what's that? And I could see his eyes opening up. And suddenly he looked at me and said, you're not saying they're three gods. You're saying they're all one God. Yes. Mm. Hear Israel. The Lord your God is one God. God, right? The, the, the plural unity. He's one God. He's one God in three persons. So anyways, but here's the key. In that moment... More than any other time, he realized that his God, who he was serving under the law, a God who judged you for not keeping the law perfectly, who wasn't doing that, was also a God of grace and love. And he was figuring that out. You see, our God has not changed. He is both. Now, you and I have a hard time with this concept. How can God be justice and be love and mercy at the same time? Because he's God. Because he's capable. I can't. I was a company commander. I was a battalion executive officer in the army. Trust me, I know the difference, and I couldn't be both at the same time. I was either justice or I was mercy. God can be both at the same time because his personality allows him to be such. He can be both at the same time. He operates on a plane that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend. But one day we will. One day we will fully realize and see all of what he is. What a spectacular day that will be, huh? I don't know why I went off on that. Well, let's go back to this. 
Uh, oh, because we're talking about all the judgments he's bringing. So we may not relate to it, but it's who he is and it's the same God. Verse 23, thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, God is reiterating that the purpose of all of this is to open the eyes of his people primarily, but also to get the world to sit up and take notice. Now move on to chapter 39. He says in verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Note this. Even though the world might not be, uh, might not be against Gog and his evil schemes, God is. God is against Gog. It's never a good thing when God is against you. But it's also a great thing to have God for you, isn't it? Praise the Lord when God is for you. Israel in this day will know that God is for them. They will realize that God has not abandoned them or left them desolate. But God is re-intervening in their lives. And they're going to recognize that to some degree. He says in verse 2, And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bringing you against the mountains of Israel. Again, note who's doing this. I will turn you around and lead you on. This isn't something, whoever that ruler is, that's going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I really want that stuff. Well, he may think that, but who's put those thoughts in his mind? God did. God did for his purposes of what he's going to do. Then he says in verse 3, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. In other words, God's going to knock away his capability to make war. He's going to take it right out from underneath him in this day. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all the troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the fields to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Israel has really two, if I remember my geography correctly, two very prominent mountain ranges running through it. The first one runs through its midsection kind of like a spine. It reaches from the Jezreel Valley in the north and extends past Hebron in the south. And much of that area falls within Judea and Samaria, and it's called today the West Bank by many. It's that region. And there's also a mountain range to the north along the Syrian border. You know the name of that one? The Golan Heights. Very interesting. It may be on one of these mountains. We don't know which range he's talking about here. It could be on either one of these mountain ranges. Now, here's where I'm going to throw a speculation in. I told you guys the first time I was here, it's dangerous to do this, but if I do it, I'm going to tell you clearly, I am just speculating, all right? So I am speculating. This is not the word of the Lord. It's interesting that Russia is in Syria today. It's also very interesting that they're pushing themselves closer and closer in a lot of their establishing bases that they're creating, closer and closer to the Golan Heights. It's interesting that the Golan Heights is a contested region by Syria itself. It's also very interesting, if you're following the news, that in the last six months, Israel has indicated that they have found a very large oil deposit in the Golan Heights, in the region of the Golan Heights. Follow the logic for a minute. How conceivable would it be for Russia to suddenly, on behalf of their little dictator there in Syria, to turn around and say, you know what? We are taking control of the Golan Heights again, and we're taking it back because it rightfully belongs to Syria. And we're coming to take it, but all the while coming to take the oil. Could that be the trigger? I don't know. 
But it's interesting that they're there. It's very interesting that they're there. And by the way, don't, don't be misled by all the stuff now about Russia pulling out, because Russia said they were pulling out of the Ukraine, too, and they're still there. All right. So we don't know whether they will go. But one thing is for certain, they built an infrastructure in Syria. So even if they go, it's very easy for them to come back and to reoccupy. So it just may not be time yet. Remember, everything's God's timing, not Putin's or whoever, you know, the person will be in that day's timing. It's God's timing. But he says here, you're going to fall on those mountains and, and, and it's going to come. God's going to do that. He's going to give them over to the birds of prey. How many of you guys heard the old wives tale? Maybe I've just been a Christian too long, but when I first got saved, it was really floating around that the, uh, the, 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 the carniv- carnivorous birds, the carnivorous vultures are multiplying in the Middle East, that they're multiplying at a rapid rate in the Middle East. And, and that had been going around for years. They were multiplying at like seven times the normal rate. And that's got to be the film of prophecy because the birds are coming down to pick the bones clean of these. That's nonsense. It's a Christian wife's tale. Just hate to burst your bubble if you believe. I believed it for years, but it's not true. So it's a wife's tale. Be careful what you listen to, right? But he says then in verse 6, And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. God vows not only to respond to the aggressing army that's coming into the land of Israel, but here he says he's also going to pour out his wrath against their homelands. When he's talking about the coastlands, he's talking about the homelands. He's talking about Magog and on those who live in the security of the coastlands. Sending fire implies destruction and military devastation. And again, coastlands, the word literally in the Hebrew implies the farthest reaches of the known world in the case. In this case, it would be referring to the farthest reaches of the known world associated with this coalition. So it would mean to some degree there may be some fallout on Russia itself. Now, a lot of people begin to speculate from this verse that uh, this description fits a nuclear strike, that God may be bringing a nuclear, you know, he's going to cause these armies to fire off nukes and to do that. That's possible, but I think it's highly unlikely. And the reason I think it's unlikely is because if, if there's nuclear exchange, how does God get the credit? How, how is it that God gets the credit for the victory? The, these armies would say, we did this with our power, with our armaments, with the things that we possess. I just personally, when I read this, I'm taking this literally, just my own view on this, because of the things that God has said he's doing through this battle to draw attention to himself. I really think that nukes muddy the water in this case. So... Look at verse 7. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One. So God's intent, again, is to awaken his people Israel, but this event will also serve to stir the world to the realization of his reality. And keep a couple of things in mind here, uh, that, 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 that a stirred realization of God's reality does not always uh, lead to right spiritual responses. So when it says this, it's not, you can't look at that and say, well, well, that doesn't make any sense because that would mean the whole world would be converting to him. No, it doesn't. You can be stirred spiritually and pursue lots of wrong things. I would argue that we live in a time where spirituality is greater than it has been at any time in our past. I know we, we, we pay attention to a lot of the atheists that are out there and making their noise, but the majority of the people are not atheists. But what they're into is very bizarre spirituality and spiritual practices Why? Because the enemy is actively at work in the world. When you look at the book, and I know you guys went there. You guys finished with the book of Revelation? 
he did that a whole lot faster than I did. We spent two and a half years in, in our fellowship. So, But um, when you look at what's taking place, even with the Antichrist, what's he initially bringing? What's coming in there? There's this false religion that's building. The world is hungering for something to fill the void. The problem is they don't want the truth. They want a religion that they can control. And so because it says here that they'll be stirred to the realization of God, it may stir them to his realization. He may be making himself aware to people, but they may be pursuing him in wrong ways at this point in time. Also keep in mind a stirred realization of God's reality doesn't always lead to yieldedness or submission to God. And I believe that will be the case with the nation of Israel initially. There will be an awareness of Jehovah God, but yet they will not be coming to a complete yieldedness to him at this point in time. It will eventually come, but it's not coming at this point in time. They're just moving toward that encounter with him that will one day come. Look at verse 8. And surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. And we know from the scriptures and we know from history that when God speaks... Everybody ought to listen because he's going to do what he says he's going to do. It just may not be in our timing, but it will occur in his. Verse 9, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. After this battle takes place and God destroys these invading armies, there will be an extensive cleanup operation that will need to take place. And that's what this is describing to us. It says here it's going to take seven years alone to burn all of the residual military equipment and hardware that's on the, left on the battlefield. It tells us that there will be so much stuff being burned that they won't even need to use firewood for heat during this period of time. And it also tells us that they will collect a cache of supplies and goods, most likely from the dead bodies and the supply trains that they capture or are left over after this battle takes place. As one scholar states, this will be an amazing reversal of God's fortunes. Israel plunder those who plundered her and loot those who looted her. And here's the thing I want you to pay attention to. I told you I'd come back to this. Here's one of the reasons that I believe may be a clue to us that this occurs before the tribulation begins. I'm a firm believer. I'm not of the, of the opinion of man's wrath versus God's wrath that's out there today. If you are, that's fine. But I hold to a literal seven-year tribulation period. That is the outpouring of God's wrath. And when you look at that seven-year period, it's very interesting that this equipment burning takes place for seven years, that this cleanup really, and that's what it's alluding to, that there's a cleanup taking place over seven years. Now, let's assume that this battle occurs somewhere during the tribulation period. Let's say it occurs at the midpoint, as some have speculated. What that would mean is, more than likely, that cleanup operation would be taking place during the latter part of the tribulation and into what? into the millennial kingdom, which there would be no evidence that, that there's any need for that in the millennial kingdom, that things are being restored during that time. It would be unnecessary. I believe that seven years may very well be a cue that this is before. I sat down with somebody once at a prophecy conference, a, a well-known scholar. He's written a number of books, and he and I got into a conversation on this. He says, no, I don't, I don't buy that. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, because I don't. <laughs> okay, great. That's super. There's some logic to this. But you know what? We don't know what we don't know. 
We don't know what we don't know, but I tend to think it's coming before. And this operation is taking place during the tribulation period and the destruction is that great, that it's going to take that long for it all to be cleaned up. Look at verse 11. It will come to pass that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will, be, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Hamangog. Literally, Hamangog means uh, the multitude of Gog or the hordes of Gog. And so it's just the name they're giving to that place. Verse 12, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So just to get rid of the bodies, just to get rid of the bodies, seven months to clean the battlefield of the bodies themselves. That's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of bodies stacked up. Absolutely. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on, on that day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. No matter how people respond to God in this day, they will clearly know that he exists and they will know that his people, Israel, are not a people to be messed with. They're going to know that because of what's taken place here. Verse 14, they will set apart men regularly employed. This is an interesting verse. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bones, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. The name of the city will also be Hamona, Thus they shall cleanse the land. Interesting, isn't it? Now, some people have speculated here that the markers are further proof of some sort of nuclear event that took place, since that's a common practice for radiological events. I, when I was in the Army, I attended the nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare school uh, for my unit, and that was one of the things you were taught was disaster cleanup and such if there was a nuclear strike, and you would identify the bodies, you would mark them with markers and such. But you know what? It's not only used for that. So you can't draw the conclusion that this is a nuclear exchange of any kind. Again, I believe God is doing this. But what this is is men cleaning up a mass casualty issue. And I don't know if you remember not too long ago when the plane went down uh, over the Alps. Remember that, that German plane that crashed in the French Alps? And I watched that, and you would see those teams almost like this moving through and marking because they couldn't find any remains other than parts, you know, bones and such, and they were marking it with little markers so they knew where the bodies were. And that's all that this is saying is going to be occurring. But it's interesting. It's saying seven months to clean up the bodies, but what this is really telling us is it's going to take longer because that's just to get the main ones that they see. Now they got to go back and find the ones that are left in the rubble, the ones that have been so decimated that they couldn't have been identified at first when they were going through, and they're going to pass through the land looking for these things. This is a horrific event. Verse 17, and as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them uh, fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. The vultures are multiplying, right? That's where they get this from, right? It's kind of like the other one, too. You know the other one? 
that they were drilling in Russia one day and they got so far down into the earth that they could hear screams. So it must be the Abusos, you know, nonsense. Not that the Abusos isn't there, but they didn't really hear it. The birds are not multiplying. What God is literally saying, though, is that there are going to be so many bodies. This is a feast for the wild animals. This is a banquet for them. In other words, it's, it's a picturesque way of describing the destruction that's coming as a result of this battle. It says in verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Ezekiel tells us there will be two things that will result from this battle. The nation shall see, and Israel shall know. The nations shall see, and Israel will know in this day. Verse 23, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to the transgressions I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. This event will be the pivotal event that God will use to begin Israel's return to himself. They're already stirring, aren't they? The dry bones are coming together. The dry bones are, are erected and, and the flesh is growing, but the spirit is not in them yet, but it's coming. It's coming. I'm fascinated by everything that's taking place with, with the temple project. You know, we, we, we're reestablishing the priesthood. They're re-identifying the, the family lines to do this. They're, they're looking for the, they're making the implements so that they can move on with the worship. They've got this stirring going on. It's interesting when you read uh, stories about Mr. Netanyahu and, and really his spirituality. Uh, there's a stirring within him for spiritual. You know, he does a Bible study every week, an Old Testament Bible study uh, with with, with people. And, and he's, he's revisiting the history of the nation. There is a stirring that's taking place with Israel, but their eyes are not fully opened yet. And they will not be completely opened as a result of this event. And when we come to the end of this passage, it's really just kind of a summarization of saying, eventually they will come to this place. There will be that day, as we're told elsewhere in scripture, that they will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they will weep when they realize who he is. And we know when that day will come, right? It's coming during the tribulation when Antichrist is bringing his wrath against them. It's that day that they'll realize. And again, this is a reason why I believe that this comes before him. Because he's going to finish their awakening. This is going to stir it. And I believe in many ways it sets the stage for him. Now, listen, bear with me a few more minutes and we're almost done. But think about this for a moment. The destruction that we've just talked about tonight. What will take place between these ten nations or these 10 players, really nine nations and their leader, Gog, but between this coalition and Israel, the majority of that coalition, with the exception of Russia, are for the most part Islamic states. And we would argue they're fairly radical Islamic states. And if they're not ISIS, which I don't believe that they really are, but they're the funders of those extreme radical groups. 
When this battle takes place and they are decimated as a result of God intervening, their capacity to make war will be pretty much reduced to nothing. Financially, they've got to be bankrupt on the back end of this, so they really can't finance the extremism that we see going on today. Without the financing of those efforts, those extremist groups begin to dry up. What you are really left with is the nation of Israel and really what we would probably term as, as moderate Islam. You know, moderate Islam that really is not practicing Islam. Do you understand that when you talk about Islam? I know people say there's peaceful Islam, you know, Islam's on religion of peace and there's moderates. And what, what Islamics would tell you is the moderates are really not Islamics. They're not really practicing Islam. We're practicing Islam. And if you look at the Quran, they're correct. ISIS is practicing Islam. These radical groups are practicing Islam, but these nations that we look at as rather moderate, they're kind of like what we would look at Christians and say, you know, Christians who dabble in Christianity for the religious things that they get out of it, but they're really not sold out to it. They just dabble in it. And that's really what we have. And I believe that when we get to the end of this, you could see a world where you would have this kind of moderate Islam that exists that's saying, we, we need to find a way to get along now. We need to figure this out. And doesn't that set the stage for a man to rise and come onto the platform and say, we need peace. We need peace. This destruction is too much. We can't, never in our lifetime, this can never occur again. We need peace. And how willing those remaining Arab states and Israel will be to find common ground in Jerusalem, to find common ground to rebuild the temple. And we know that that's not far from being possible, right? I believe that where the Dome of the Rock sits today is really what was the court of the Gentiles. And, and that the temple, when you look at where it existed, could be built with the mosque still there. But they couldn't do it today because of the extremism and the animosity that exists. There's a war fervor that's building that has to culminate. And when that culminates and everybody's played out, a man can come and say, I can bring you peace. Let me do this thing. And then he begins to bring peace. Ah, he's our Messiah. We're awakened to God, right? This war has made us aware that God has come. He's now sent us our Messiah. Here he is. And now they begin to worship him until that three and a half year mark where Paul tells us and Daniel tells us that he will walk into the temple. He will seat himself in the Holy of Holies. And he will demand to be worshipped as God. And in that moment, their eyes will be completely opened. The work will be completed. The, the work that God began in this battle, and, and even before this, will be completed in this moment. He will finish what he started with Israel. They will know their Messiah in that moment. And he'll keep them. He'll keep believing Israel during that time from the hand of Antichrist. He will keep them. But that time has to come. So I think that this comes before Antichrist comes to power. My personal opinion it happens before it takes place, gives, sets the stage for Antichrist to come and for the final awakening of the Jews. And where are we? We are celebrating, I believe, in the presence of our Savior, right? You guys know, and I'm sure that uh, your husband has taken them through this, but you know, the, the wedding, the, the, the parallel between what occurs with the rapture of the church and, and where we are with Jesus parallels what occurs in the Jewish wedding process. It occur, it's just like that. You know, they would wait in that final one for the groom to come at an unexpected time. They would wait for him to show up. And then he would show up and he would take his bride away to a banquet and he would take her behind closed doors with himself for how long? For seven days. For seven days, right? When we look at the book of Daniel, a day, a week, you know, they're equating to the years. 
I believe it's a picture of that seven years that we'll be, we'll be joined with our, with our groomsmen, with Jesus Christ, and we'll be celebrating and fellowshipping with him until that day when he says, we're now going to come back out, and he presents us to the world as we return with him here as he takes his rightful place. Amen? That's an awesome passage. Does it give you hope? Hope it does. Don't focus on all the birds and the, the blood and the mass destruction. You know, understand that this is God working out a plan that ultimately is for good of human beings who are willing to see what he's doing. Even those that will live in this day. You know, imagine the impact on those who would have open hearts in the midst of this and what he will be able to do through it. We know that in the tribulation, it's going to be one of the greatest revivals to take place. That there will be one of the greatest revivals to take place during the tribulation. How does that happen? Because God is a God who's operating both in justice and grace simultaneously. His grace doesn't go away when his judgment comes. He's still searching hearts. He's still looking for those that would receive him. And he's still willing to come and sup with them if they will. Amen.